You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Podcast, Episode 3. Today we kick it off with Ryan's rant on the clumsy implementation of BC's new 15% foreign buyer's real estate tax. In our Your Stock, Our Take segment, we review a viewer question on Inspira Financial, a microcap. And in our Stars and Dogs of the Week, we review Bombardier and Magna International. Now, if this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and Facebook. Now let's dig into the show. I would again like to welcome my co-host, Keystone's senior equity analyst, father of one, and a man who has more balls than any player in the short history of Pokemon Go, Mr. Aaron Dunn. Thank you, Ryan. Now, in case you have been stuck down a well or screen stunned by Pokemon Go over the past few weeks, the British Columbia government implemented a new 15% tax on real estate purchases by foreign buyers this past Tuesday. It's time for Ryan's Rant. I love or hate the policy, and that is another rant unto itself. The execution was god-awful. At issue here is the fact that deals signed before July 26th announcement, closed, which closed after this past Tuesday, are now subject to the full 15% tax. There is no grandfathering in the legislation. Now we have a situation where home buyers have entered into a legal deal at a specified price after doing all their homework on the total cost for the transaction and they've had the landscape change after they signed the agreement and are now forced to pay a 15% tax. That is garbage policy in my opinion. Now think of it this way. It's like being a kicker in the Super Bowl. You're two points behind. There's one second left on the clock. You line up the kick, boot it, and the ball is traveling straight through the goalpost for a one-point win. But wait, the NFL decides to make a rule change and mid-kick and shrink the size of the it at mid-kick and shrink the size of the goalpost. Your click kick flies wide, and too bad you lose. This is ridiculous. Look, we're not talking about the goal of the policy here. I get what is trying to be accomplished, and we can quibble on that as well, but, but the lack of foresight into the potential problems with the implementation is shocking. It is just another reason why voters become disenchanted with politicians. I understand you have to set a date, but to not implement a grandfather clause or even anticipate this issue, I mean, really? I mean, who who's on the committee, committee to set this policy? I assume somebody sat down at some point to hash this one out. The problem is, I picture in my head Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels from Dumb and Dumber over a couple of martinis in Yaletown. So, does anybody see any issue with this 15% tax thing? Anybody? Anything at all? Alrighty then, let's down these and go see if we still have a chance with Mary Swanson. Now, of course, nobody even remembers who Mary Swanson is from that movie, but 
my point is the grand the grandfathering was also optically or the non-grandfathering is also optically stupid from a political standpoint you just knew a few tragic stories would appear immediately after the announcement and enter Hamid Ahmadi, whose story has been all over the news in BC over the past couple days. Now, Hamid was living the Canadian dream. In May, after an exhaustive search, he and his girlfriend found a $360,000 condo. They paid the $18,000 as half of the 10% down payment. Now, the other $18,000 was supposed to be paid today when the deal is set to close. Despite the fact that Hamid entered into a contract under the previous taxation rules in May, because his deal closed after the magical August 2nd deadline, he is suddenly on the hook for an extra 54000 in unseen taxes. That is cash he just does not have. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but Hamid is not the type of buyer the tax is supposed to be targeting. His $360,000 family home purchase is not moving any markets. Now, he appears to be a hardworking man, educated, who moved here from Iran in 2012 uh, to earn his PhD in electrical and computer engineering from UBC. He has a job at BC Hydro. Now, from this point, Hamid decided it was time to purchase a home. He couldn't afford anything in Vancouver, and many can sympathize with this. And he even turned to the suburbs. And for this, he even required some help from his retired parents back home. And he's very grateful for that. Now, he is hardly a foreign tycoon inflating and flipping and moving housing prices. Now, grandfathering the tax would have solved all of this. Full stop. A little common sense here would have gone a long way. But unfortunately, common sense and political policy are not often spoken in the same breath. Aaron? Unfortunately, they're not. And and I think that uh, politicians just don't live in the real world. Sometimes, what one of the, the key takeaways for me here, what the shame is, is that it just would have been so easy for them to implement this tax more fairly. And in the case of, uh, of Amadi, just just to just so that people understand, the agreement that he signed with the seller of the property and the deposit he paid is completely independent of any government regulation. So, if he, for example, just to use his, him as the example, if he isn't able to come up with the fifty four thousand dollars, the extra tax, then he doesn't just lose his opportunity to buy the home. He he could also lose his eighteen thousand dollar deposit, and he could even potentially be sued uh, for further damages beyond that. So I, I don't know how many people are in his situation. In his personal case, um, he's his permanent residency application is in is in process. It's it's pending. But even if it's just a small handful of people, even if it's just him, it still makes me angry because it's just so easily avoidable with just a little little bit of thought from the lawmakers. It's really what this is like to me. It's like applying a law retroactively, and it sends a message to me that the government isn't concerned whether it be in real estate or another industry, about fostering a fair, transparent, and predictable business environment. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I just, I don't understand how little foresight and common sense could not have went into the implementation of this tax. And it just doesn't seem to be part of the equation. But Well, it's politicians we're talking about. Yeah. so it's, it's incredibly curious how that did not come up in any discussion. But anyways, we'll move on uh, to your stock, our take. Um, this is sent in from one of our listeners this week. Aaron reviews a microcap company 
Uh, Inspira Financial, symbol is LND on the TSX Venture. I'll let you have out it, Aaron. Sure. So from the website, Inspira targets small healthcare providers throughout the United States by offering revolving lines of credit and loans ranging, ranging from a quarter million to $12 million and is able to generate yields of up to 20% annually, represented by a mixture of interest and fees. The good news about the company is the balance sheet, which is very strong, almost $14 million in cash and only about $2 million in debt. So looking at this company from an asset valuation standpoint, they have about $0.31 cents per share in net cash, and they only trade at $0.39. Cents. The problem here, though, is when we start to look at the, the income statement, they reported only $800,000 in revenue in the last quarter and also reported a net loss. Net cash flow from operations was positive for the quarter, but that was due to the collection of receivables as opposed to um, actual operating earnings during the period. From my look at this company, I would not be a buyer of the stock, even with the huge cash balance. The numbers just don't justify a purchase to me because I don't see any recurring, recurring earnings. Another more qualitative factor about this company is that I believe that they, that they are affiliated with the group that founded Patient Home Monitoring, that's PHM on the TSX Venture as well. For anyone not familiar with PHM, it, it, it has really, over the last year, become a cautionary tale for investors that are thinking about putting their capital in companies based on a lot of hype and a lot of promises. Uh, PHM was up around $2 per share last year and is now trading for about $0.20. Cents. Everybody was loving it a year ago. Now, not so much. There are a lot of big promises that came from the people, big promises and projections that came from the people that, that were back in the company, and these, these promises were not met. Sometimes it, it happens where, where management doesn't hit guidance, and there are justifiable reasons for that, but this, this wasn't just not hitting guidance. This was, this was um, completely out to left field. Those promises and projections, from my perspective, should never have been made. So... Aspira's affiliation with the with the group that was behind PHM would make us nervous, especially considering the fact that it's that Inspira is still in an early stage of financial development, and it's also a fairly risky business. The business model, I say risky, because when you're making twenty percent per annum in interest and fees off of a loan, that sounds to me like subprime. What do you think, Ryan? Yeah, I mean, I think you summed it up quite well. Um, on Inspira for us, I mean, it does have a good balance sheet. You know, it's cash rich, like we like to see. They are increasing revenues, but you know, you're talking about eight hundred thousand on a quarterly basis. It's still relatively small. Now they implemented a dividend just this past week. Um, we believe for a company that size, you know, doing eight hundred thousand in revenue on a quarterly basis. Um, it's, it's a little early in the game to be doing that. And it kind of smacks of a company who's trying to take advantage of, of the current environment that is starved for yield. And we don't think this is a reason to offer a yield. We think a business with sustainable cash flow that is kicking off enough cash flow that it's able to invest in the business and return capital to shareholders. That is a company that should be investing as, or, or it should be putting out a dividend uh, as a dividend grower over time, we'd maybe set a policy of say putting 20% of free cash flow or cash flow out in earnings. Uh, we're not uh, as a dividend, sorry, we're not seeing that here. Uh, we're seeing a company kind of jump the gun on a dividend in our opinion. Uh, it's early stages in the game and we would hold off till they had more, more sustainable cash flow to be able to share that with shareholders.
Now, the other point here was the association with the group that was responsible for PHM and uh, Convalo, which is another TSX Venture-listed company. Uh, both companies, PHM mainly, um, as Aaron said, over-promised and under-delivered in terms of uh, their guidance going forward on cash flows, EBITDA revenues. Uh, we would prefer a company to uh, over-prom or under-promise and over-deliver. That's what we like to see from the companies, or at least hit the uh, estimates that they've been putting out to the market. In this case, um, we have not seen many companies over-promise to the degree that Patient Home did and under-deliver under -deliver to the degree that they have. So we put management team and the group behind this in a penalty box. We would rather see this company come out with uh, you know, almost three or four quarters worth of solid financial results, pay that dividend, and then we'll take a look at it. Uh, at this point, uh, we're not investing in the company. I'm going to move on to our stars and dogs of the week. This week, we're going to begin with our dog. Now, that is, again, once again, Bombardier. It's funny, we are three episodes in, uh, and this Canadian maker of planes, trains, and no automobiles is making its second appearance as a dog. From our Stars and Dogs segment, it's time for this week's dog. Why, you ask? Well, this morning the company posted another huge loss in its second quarter of the year. Bombardier lost $490 million, almost half a billion in that three-month period. Remember, this is a company that recently went hat-in-hand to the Quebec government for $1 billion in funding. Now, well, they've managed to lose almost half of that in a three-month period. Very impressive. Bombardier blames significant softness in the market for smaller-sized business aircraft and its spending on companies, the company's new crown jewel C-series planes. Of course, the company will tell you that the future is bright through its investment in this new C-series long-range business aircraft, but this is the same C-series that is over time and well over budget. And on the company's conference call just uh, on Friday morning, uh, the CEO said that Bombardier was still in talks with the Canadian government about further investment or bailout, however you want to frame it. Now, time will tell if Justin will get this funding decision right. Now, Bombardier's shares are up from their all-time lows entering 2016. But in our opinion, even a dead cat will bounce if you drop it from high enough. This consistently underperforming stock is down 90% from its highs in 2000 and over 60% in the last five years alone. It continues to produce negative cash flow, find new ways, new and inventive ways to miss deadlines and induce government funding to keep it afloat. In the end, the company continues to destroy shareholder value. We do not consider it investable. Despite all of this, only one of the 21 analysts recorded as covering the stock have a sell on it at current prices we would not be investing in this company. Aaron? Yeah, I was just going to say, I often wonder why anybody would invest in a company like this. I understand that it's it, it's a well-known name, uh, a lot of assets back in the company, and I, I think that people, they, they, they might like the industry that it's in, but I mean, here is just a serial underperformer. And what I think is that a lot of people are buying a company like this with the expectation to trade it. They think that even if it runs into problems, the government will 
will bail it out uh, if it signs a couple big contracts and there'll be a big bump up in the share price and then they can make their money but trading like that is 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 like playing craps in vegas or russian roulette or 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 whatever you want to whatever you want to call it whatever you want to play it's just a complete gamble it's it's not an investment and in terms of the in terms of a government bailout the the last people that are going to benefit from a government bailout are the shareholders that's that's not who the government is trying to to protect with with the bailout so we always advise staying away from a stock like this it's just not something it's just not something that's going to generate shareholder value over time i think we've uh chewed that dog to the bone so let's get into well let's get to the star then yeah let's get into the star this week and things on a high note from our stars and dogs segment it's time for this week's star okay so also releasing financial results today was was magna international the symbol is mg on the tsx exchange magna is a global automotive supplier with 309 manufacturing operations and 99 product development engineering and sales centers in 29 countries around the globe it's a very well known and highly respected company in its industry for the second quarter the company reported 9.4 billion in revenue up 16 percent from the previous year Earnings per share were $1.41, up 9.3%. Not earth-shattering growth by any means, but profitability is strong and it's moving in the right direction. 2016 is shaping up to be the company's fifth straight year of growth in earnings per share, and the balance sheet as well is very healthy with a manageable debt load equivalent to about a year's worth of operating earnings. Finally, the valuation is very attractive, only about eight or nine times uh, current earnings right now. But in spite of these strong fundamentals, the share price is down 26% over the last 12 months. And the problem is, is the industry. Investors are concerned about the industry, which is, of course, automotive manufacturing. This industry has enjoyed rising sales for the past seven or so years. But it's a, cyclic, it's a cyclical space to be in, and a lot of investors believe that we've already hit peak auto sales and that the industry activity will start to decline from here. Our take on this view is that it is, it is a very justifiable position. Here you have a cyclical industry that's done well for an extended period of time, and that's a big risk for, for companies that manufacturers that operate in that space. During periods of strong industry activity, rising sales generally means higher utilization at manufacturing facilities, and that results in higher margins. So when the industry starts to contract, not only are manufacturers impacted by the lower sales, but margins also tend to suffer, which which negatively impacts earnings further. So if you believe that we're heading into a stiff global recession right now, then you probably want to wait a while before buying a company like Magna. But there is a counter-argument to this, um, and that is that auto industry sales do not have to move up and down across business cycles like a roller coaster. So even if we are at peak auto sales now, that doesn't mean that they're going to necessarily fall off a cliff next year. They could flatten out for a while, they could drop off a little, and then they could move back up. And in this type of scenario, a company like Magda may be able to continue to acquire market share from competitors, find new efficiencies in their business, and even expand into new products, all of which could drive sales and earnings higher. So if the economic picture does it, it and if the economic picture does improve slightly from here, even just slightly, then I think that the valuation can move up from its current level as well, because it does look quite attractive at eight to nine times earnings. I personally have no opinion on where auto sales are going to go, but if you do like the auto sector, then a small position in Magda might make sense because it is definitely a high-quality operator in that space. 
And the best way for investors to protect themselves, of course, is to intelligently diversify their holdings across multiple companies and multiple sectors and to keep exposure to individual cyclical sectors at a minimum or keep it relatively low. Yeah, thank you very much. And we, we did actually issue a report on a, a small cap that's in our focus buy portfolio that is in the automotive sector that actually is producing growth at a higher rate than Magna. Um, and we're not going to issue that company today because our, our, our paid clients pay for that service. But again, another reason to maybe look into uh, look into Keystone's paid research and uh, take a look at uh, take a look at the uh, the report we just put out on an, an auto manufacturer that uh, has great growth, has been a dividend grower over time. And uh, again, I encourage our clients who are listening to log in and, and check out that report, or the update that we put out this week on the company. Again, thanks for stopping by this week. I'll thank Aaron for, uh, for, uh, for co-hosting. Um, the show notes, again, are found at www.keystocks.com. Uh, you can add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or at iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and Facebook. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, profitable investing. Profitable investing. We'll chat next week.